Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Hamilton Police Services Board is going to decide next month whether to investigate the police conduct at Pride this past June. Last night was the first in the leadership debates for the Canadian election. How did that go? Well, we'll talk about that. And the Democratic presidential candidates also had a debate last night. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. And it was a very eventful week here in Hamilton as well. We uh, had the uh, good fortune, I guess, to have two town halls uh, this week. We usually don't get them in the same week. Uh, the Chief of Police, Eric Gert, who does this on a regular basis, was here earlier in the week. And uh, just yesterday, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, was here to take your calls and uh, talk about the, some of the issues. Some, of course, cross over the, between uh, police services and uh, the city. And a lot of it has to do with the LGBTQ concerns that have been raised since Pride Day, really. Uh, which goes back a few months now. And Hamilton Police Services Board had a meeting yesterday, and uh, they said they're going to decide next month whether or not to investigate the police conduct at Pride in June and subsequently uh, some of the, uh, the behaviors that have gone on since then at the events down at City Hall and the forecourt and things of this nature. Is that going to be enough to, uh, to set us back on the right path and to start building some bridges here in this community? I want to bring Grant Crawford in. He's the reigning citizen of the year, of course, uh, uh, here in Hamilton, history and heritage owner, and uh, certainly active resident here in this community. Graham, good morning. Welcome to the program again. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, It's been a busy week, uh, especially to do with a lot of the issues that you have been very much involved in over the last little while. Uh, you heard comments this week on this program from Chief Gert and uh, yesterday from Mayor Eisenberger and yesterday the Police Services Board. Uh, give me your read on what you've heard and, and, and how this is affecting either pro or con, uh, some of the concerns uh, from the LGBTQ community. Well, there's three things there you mentioned. First of all, uh, chief, the chief uh, was on your show, as you mentioned, uh, doing the town hall and made some comments for which he has uh, offered a sort of an apology. But the fact is he said those things, were, which were very hurtful and utterly inappropriate for the chief of police to be saying in 2019 uh, focusing on gay sex rather than on the safety of members of the LGBTQ plus community. So that in and of itself is pretty disturbing. In fact, I say it's very disturbing. Uh, Mayor Eisenberger was on with you for a town hall, and he basically said there's nothing he can do. He's, uh, and, he, and he sort of focused on um, the criminal code as it relates to hate crimes. Uh, we all, we're all aware of How How'd you feel about that? Well, I mean, when Fred throws his hands up in the air and says, basically, as the leader of, of the 10th the largest city in the country, there's nothing I can do. Um, so sorry. It's not good enough. It's not even nearly good enough. And in fact, I think it's unconscionable on the part of the person we call mayor. Because what, what, what I'm hearing and what I've seen on social media, and I've, as you might expect, Graham, received a lot of feedback on the two town halls this week. I listened to both of them, by the way. Uh, is that, look at, I, I understand where the chief is coming from to a point. In other words, he's quoting from the criminal code, and as a police officer, that's his responsibility, he says, uh, to that. I, I get that to a point, but I, I asked him, uh, I guess two or three different times, that's fine. But there are people here that feel unsafe on the streets. What are we doing about that? And he just referenced the criminal code again. That that seems to be, you know, I, we know theory. Now we want practicality. We need practical. And I don't know if we're getting that. Certainly, I, from what I'm hearing back uh, from many people in the community right now, uh, they weren't satisfied. Well, 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 no, we were not satisfied. And kudos to you, Bill. You really did try to keep the discussion focused, but the chief insisted on 
reading the criminal code. I mean, you may as well have had Alexa on as a guest and just asked Alexa to quote the code. The fact is, it's, uh, Chief Gert is the chief of police. There is stuff happening in this city right now. He chose to focus on uh, things that have happened, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, as he quoted the criminal code and sex in public washrooms. And, and by the way, I mean, I think they're dog whistles. He's either inept or they're dog whistles, but he, those are basically the two choices. And well, I, I was kind of surprised it came up. Obviously, I did not attend that meeting, and you did. Uh, and I've talked to you, and I've talked to a few other people that attended that meeting. Cameron Crush, of course, was, was yeah. on the program with you a couple of days ago. And I heard no reference at all to that. Uh, so I assumed that it never came up, and I was I was surprised actually that the chief said, "Yeah, that was one of the topics of discussion at that it, meeting." It was not a topic of discussion. It was referenced, Bill, for possibly twenty to thirty seconds. That meeting was two and a half hours long, and lots of comments were made, and lots of questions were asked of the, the chief and of the deputy. And the, and what the chief took from that meeting was a reference to uh, 20 seconds worth of content in that meeting, and that's what he focused on. And you didn't even ask him that question. That's what he chose to talk about. Um, he also chose to talk about anal intercourse. Bill, I haven't heard anybody use that phrase in 30 years. It, it's, it, he's a dinosaur. He, he, it's, he's so out of touch, and yet we are supposed to rebuild this relationship with the police. In my opinion, Chief Gert has proven that he cannot be a trusted partner with the LGBTQ community. Well, I'm going to I'll paraphrase this because I, I don't have it in front of me, but I got a tweet from somebody the, uh, after that show uh, said that this harkened back to the days of the the raids at the RBG and the bathhouse raids and and things of that nature. And and I you know and this individual who was quite upset about this thought I thought we had put that stuff behind us, but maybe not everybody has. Well, apparently not the leader of. The, the police in Hamilton. The problem is he is the chief, which means he sets the tone and direction uh, and culture within the Hamilton Police Service. And so what do the officers take from what they heard their chief of police say? What do the officers conclude from what he chose to focus on? I just, I don't get it, Bill. For all I know, Gert is standing on a corner right now shouting about gay sex to anybody who will listen to him. It was such an incredible, inappropriate use of an, an ancient trope, Focus, defining us by sex, not by who we are as members of this community, who are under current threat. That's what he should have focused on. That's not what he focused on. I, I'm, I'm flummoxed as to how we got to this point. I really am. Bill, it's, it's, I couldn't have even predicted it would get worse than it already had. But it, it is getting worse, and every time Chief Gert opens his mouth, it seems, and I'm sorry to say this, but it is the fact, and he does it on your show, um, he puts his foot in his mouth, uh, and he says inappropriate stuff that he then has to walk back. I mean, how many times in a row do you have to do that and, and have people still support you as chief of police? In my opinion, Chief Gert should either retire resign or be asked to resign. Those are the three choices, in my opinion. I suspect the chief is fully pensionable. He's been with the, the HPS for th over 30 years. He's been the chief of police for three and a half years. 
and yet, you know, days ago, he makes these inappropriate comments that are all over the mainstream media, social media, and there's a buzz in our community, and people are deeply offended. And yet, we're supposed to go to another meeting and do what? That's my question. Is what, Chief, what are you going to do beyond insult us and hurt us at every turn? I, I've known Chief Gertz since he rose to the... the, the the level of, of deputy, of course, and, and we've had interactions. Uh, you know, we, we don't socialize, but we know each other. And I, I, I had a lot of respect. I still do have a lot of respect for him as an individual. And I think uh, in, in, in Maine, the Maine, he's done a pretty decent job here of, of trying to control this community and trying to do what needed to be done here. Uh, but this issue here uh, just seems to be, I, it, I don't know what's going on. They, this, there seems to be an inability here to, to face some of the realities here with this issue. Uh, and and the, the more you deflect it, the worse it gets. Well, this is a crisis of leadership, as I have been saying, and in my opinion, Chief Gert continues to prove my point. It is a crisis of leadership. I'm sure Eric Gert is a nice guy. The world is full of nice guys, Bill. That isn't the issue. The issue is one of leadership here in the midst of a civic crisis, and we've got a problem. Our chief is, is continuing to drive a wedge between the uh, HPS and the LGBTQ community. And Mayor Fred Eisenberger is unfortunately behaving as a spectator, throwing his hands up in the air, saying, I don't know what to do. How about if we spend the next 18 months just talking about it? That is literally his plan, his published plan. A series of seminars over the next 18 months, culminating in a hate summit to talk more about it. No plan of action otherwise. A crisis of leadership. Yet both are major civic institutions, and it is a problem. And I'm sorry, but it's time for Chief Gert to step aside. I mean, I mean, we, I've heard from a number of people in the community, and they talked about education has to be part of this, and I, I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, but that's for the that's for the next generation. What are we doing for the here and now? I, that, that's the that's the plan I'd like to hear. Huge point, Bill. You're absolutely right. Of course, education is part of it, uh, and you're right. If, if you're future-focused, yes, let's focus on current generations, next generations, and so on. But the fact is, there's stuff happening in our streets right now. And to throw up your hands, to, uh, if you're the mayor, and to insult the very people who are under, under uh, threat uh, on the radio uh, by the chief, uh, these are not good things. And they need to be held accountable for it. This is not going away. It's actually getting worse. And the escalation with the soldiers or sons of Odin on the forecourt last Saturday, this is escalating. And anyone who thinks it isn't is misguided or not paying attention. We need everybody's help to fight hate here. But we particularly need it from our leaders. And we're not getting it. And, and residents like me should not be the ones who have to put our, our, our time, effort, body, soul, passion into this and do it alone. If, if the residents weren't banding together to try to do something, nothing would be happening. Not surprisingly, uh, this whole thing became a topic of conversation, I'm told, at the Police Services Board meeting yesterday. Yes. Uh, what they have resolved to do was, uh, I guess, wait a month, and then they're going to decide, I guess they're gathering information, uh, as to whether to launch an independent investigation into what happened at Pride at the Gage Park uh, incident, and, and I guess subsequently at some of the stuff that happened in the City Hall forecourt. Uh, your read on that. Well, I mean, you know, again, there's no sense of urgency here. Pride happened three months ago. 
The Police Service Board met a month ago and, and talked about this very thing. They meet again 30 days later, and they say, hey, let's put it off for another month, and then we'll start talking about it. Bill, remember, they haven't actually talked about it yet. They've talked around it. They've said, yeah, let's look into whether or not we should do it, come back with a report, and then we'll talk about whether or not we move ahead. So what are we to to take from that? There is no sense of urgency. The mayor is dragging his feet, and he's the chair of the police service board. He should not be the chair. He should step aside. He can be sit at the table. Uh, The mayor always gets to sit at the table. But if he's not prepared to show leadership and get on with this, and express the sense of urgency that we have a big problem and at every turn it's slow down slow down let's let's put it put it off for another you know 30 days they talk about an arena with greater urgency than they do the safety of our residents and that is not acceptable is there one thing, Graham? And I know you don't speak for the community. You're just you're a concerned, you're concerned citizen. Be very clear. And I, I know you've always made that point every time you've come on the program. Uh, but is is there is there one incident, one activity, one one uh, suggestion, uh, gesture, anything that they could do that we'd say, okay, now they're on the right track? Well, if you mean the police service board, yes, they could agree to to, to uh, immediately begin and fund an independent investigation. Uh, they could set a timeline. I realize these things are not, they can't be done in 30 days. Um, but the point is, if it, ta- if it takes you 90 days or 120 days to even start the thing, uh, how long does it take to finish it? So I, I think greater sense of urgency on the part of the police service board. I think greater sense of, of uh, leadership and camaraderie and, and, and teamwork on the part of council and the mayor. We still have stragglers, Bill. We still have counselors who have not said a single word about this. And those counselors include people like Lloyd Ferguson and Chad Collins and Brenda Johnson. They said nothing, not a single word. Uh, Others have spoken but not said a ton. Others are very active, like Brad Clark and Maureen Wilson and Narinder Non, John Paul Danko. Uh, They're actually showing up and showing leadership. We need them to come together and make a statement. It also put forward a plan of action as a council on behalf of all residents to do something about hate in this city. If we can't get our police on side to help us with this without insulting the communities they're supposed to be protecting, then our council needs to do it. This vacuum of leadership is just... Bill, I can't tell you uh, how upsetting it is how disturbing it is for me to see this. It's the very stuff I used to see 40 years ago. But even then, back in Toronto, there were members of council and the mayor who stood up against hate and pushed back and stood with us and helped us. That is not happening to the extent I think it needs to happen in Hamilton 40 years later. Well, uh, tomorrow is Saturday. That means another rally. Uh, who knows who's going to show up on, on either side of this issue down in the forecourt at City Hall. It's an issue that's not going away, is it? It's not going away. It is escalating, in fact, uh, while our leaders uh, assume the role of spectators. It's the most inappropriate thing they could do, but that is what they're doing. The only thing Fred's done in the forecourt is show up for a photo op for 10 minutes. The hate bus was on, on the sidewalk longer than Fred was there to show his support. Uh, Fred needs to stop hiding. 
Graham, we are just about out of time. We'll leave it here for the time being. Certainly, we're going to continue our coverage on this, too, and I really thank you for your participation in this. Thanks for the time today. Bill, I appreciate it very much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are into election season. Well, in both countries, obviously, the United States elections not till a year from now, but well, the Democrats are looking for a nominee, and uh, they've had a series of uh, debates. We're going to get into that in the second hour of the program. But here in Canada, of course, the writ was dropped earlier this week, and uh, it's game on now for this election. We already knew it was going to be October 21st. And uh, they already had, last night, uh, the first leaders' debate. Well, with one notable exception, uh, the prime minister, as we were told before, didn't show up. Uh, He had uh, taken a pass on that. He was out in Edmonton at a rally. But uh, the other three uh, party leaders, uh, Elizabeth May, Andrew Scheer, and Jamit Singh, did meet uh, for the the first of these uh, series of debates that are going to be happening. Uh, and uh, it was an interesting evening, to say the least. Joining us to talk about this is Peter Grave, Professor of Political Science from uh, McMaster University. Hey, Peter, how are you doing today? Great, thanks. Good. Uh, interesting night last night. Uh, given the way the three leaders actually, in the first part of it, went after uh, the Prime Minister, uh, they, they'd have a, an empty podium there. They probably could have hung a Justin Trudeau pinata from that, from the way they were taking shots at him, though. Yeah, and, uh, you know, watching it, uh, seeing people sort of make dunks on Trudeau who wasn't there, you know, was not perhaps the most uh, thrilling thing. But, yeah, I mean, certainly you would expect, uh, and maybe that's why Mr. Trudeau decided not to show up. These, uh, uh, you know, these debates are often filled with attacks on the uh, Prime Minister, which makes sense because he has a record to defend over the past four years. Uh, but generally, uh, Prime Ministers do well because they get to look Prime Ministerial and mm-hmm. uh make the claim that they maybe didn't do everything right, but uh, that they were uh, pretty successful in making uh, a number of decisions and looking serious and statesmanlike and having to make the tough calls. But for whatever reason, Mr. Trudeau felt perhaps that he was too vulnerable uh, in that situation to, to make that a kind of performance. Peter, you and I haven't talked since he made that announcement. Do you think this is going to hurt him in the long haul, not showing up last night? Well, I... I mean, I think it may. I mean, in a way, his uh, his strategy in the first few days of the campaign has been really to try and uh, campaign in NDP ridings, with the idea being that he's going to lose some seats and maybe he can win them from a weakened NDP. Uh, but at the same time, he set up this election as, you have to vote for me to stop the Conservatives. But when people turn on their TV and they see it's Mr. Singh and Ms. May uh, taking on the Conservative leader and Mr. Trudeau's not there, uh, he may lose that capacity. He may have set things up for those other leaders to actually capitalize in, in his attempt to make it you know, anyone but Andrew Scheer. And they'll say, well, yeah, if we, if we don't want Andrew Scheer, maybe it's these people who are taking it to him. Well, give me a read on, on the leaders last night. I, we'll, we'll talk about substance in a second, but I want to talk about performance, because that counts, obviously, in a television debate. Who, who, who impressed you? Who didn't impress you last night? Well, I mean, I think they all uh, did pretty much what they had to do because, uh, you know, they're, we may think they're speaking to all Canadians, but they actually have an idea of which Canadians uh, vote they have to, you know, who they have to motivate to come and vote and on what issue they want to make sure they vote. So, I mean, someone like Mr. Shear, who had a fairly subdued uh, performance, I think, through the night, uh, he nevertheless uh, continued coming back to this idea uh, that you needed to balance the budget, that somehow uh, the finances of this country were being managed in an irresponsible manner. Uh, that was a theme that was really popular uh, with voters in the 905 when they chose Ford a year ago. And so I think Mr. Shear is really trying to make that an issue because he knows there's an important part of his electorate that's going to respond and come out when he does that. Uh, I think Ms. May, uh, a lot of people were critical of her performance as being a bit kind of rambling and, uh, you know, in, in her style. But I think probably for her electorate, that style works well coming across as, you know, not too, uh, 
you know, not too much of a politician, uh, someone who seems to know her files, uh, someone who's willing to say that there are good things in other parties' platforms and sort of be a bit of the anti-politician. So, again, I don't know if she really would grow her base, but certainly she spoke to it. And uh, I think Mr. Singh, likewise, uh, did well to, you know, not that well-known by Canadians. Uh, a lot of people have been, you know, telling the story that the NDP's done and he's got no capacity as a leader, but uh, he clearly showed that he could hold his own uh, with the other leaders. And, uh had a kind of a uh, you know, slightly humorous style that probably would apply uh, and interest uh, younger people in terms of, you know, uh, saying pretty you know frank things about uh, well, don't you have an answer to a yes or no question and so on. So I think all of them probably uh, succeeded in terms of reaching the parts of the electorate they wanted to reach. I was just looking at some words I was writing down as I was watching it. I, I agree with you. I think Singh actually looked like the most polished and, and prepared uh, of the three of them last night. Uh, and came across, I thought, quite well and, and quite well prepared for this. Uh, I, I agree that, you know, as, as some of the critics said, that Elizabeth, like, she looked kind of in, in a rambling fashion. But, I mean, as you say, that's she's always been like that. That's just the way she does it. I, I get the sense that, that Andrew Shearer was kind of disengaged. Uh, he he just he was going over talking points, as you say. I didn't hear any passion in a, in just about any of his answers. He didn't really seem to want to get engaged with either of the other two, and it got into some of the open discussions there either. No, well, I mean, I guess really for him, the other two parties who were there weren't interesting to him. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, we remember uh, in the last election, uh, Stephen Harper decided not to attend certain uh, debates, yeah. and then Mr. Mulcair said, "I'm not going to go uh, because I'm running for the job of prime minister," and he he got uh, slammed for that uh, publicly, and I think that cost uh, cost him in the eyes of the electorate. But, uh, you know, I think you see the other side of it when Mr. Shear does show up. I mean, he wanted to be debating the empty podium, and that does not make good TV. <laughs> yeah. We saw it with, with Clint Eastwood, uh, you know, talking to the empty <laughs> chair. That was Obama. I mean, it's, uh, it's not going to work. And so, you know, the people are watching it to be an exchange between the three people in the room. I think Mr. Singh, and to a lesser extent, Ms. May, you know, did go after Shear and tried to bring him into the debate, and, and Mr. Shear was looking elsewhere at, at the empty podium. Just about every time. You're right. Not for lack of, of, of trying by the two there to try to get him involved in some of these discussions. But I, I agree. I think he just he didn't want to talk to these guys. It's like, hey, I'm not here to fight you guys because you're going to finish third and fourth, and everybody knows that. I want the other guy. So he's just kind of holding his powder, I guess, until he goes one-on-one -on -one against uh, the prime minister. Yeah, which is, I mean, again, there aren't a lot of votes that would be moving between the Conservatives and the NDP, maybe a few more that go between the Conservatives and the Greens. So, you know, it maybe was still a bit of a strategic, uh, you know, lapse on his part. I mean, there's a certain number of, say, you know, uh, Conservative NDP vote switchers who probably are in Shear's camp at the moment because they saw Mr. Singh as being about uh, identity politics. But uh, uh, when he comes out and begins talking about pharmacare and other sort of pocketbook issues, uh, you know, those are votes that uh, that Mr. Shear could lose. And so, uh, you know, on that front, and similarly, there's a lot of conservatives who are concerned about the environment, and he was maybe not as strong as he could have been in trying to defend his climate plan when uh, when uh, Ms. May uh, made a number of critiques about what was missing in it. So, uh, you know, there's still, still votes he could have lost there last night, and maybe he didn't do the best to, to think about how to shore up those parts of his support. Well, I was looking for some more substance in the, in some of those areas as well, and, and you're right, he seemed to be concentrating on the typical conservative talking points. I want to balance the budget, I want to cut spending, yada, 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 which is, you know, what Stephen Harper did, what, uh, what Doug Ford did to get elected as well. 
Uh, but he, he did look pretty weak when it got around to some of the, what I think are going to be some of the more important issues in this election, uh, including the environment, Aboriginal issues, obviously. Uh, and he, he, he seemed weak on all of those and, and didn't really seem to be able to, to counterpoint a lot of the stuff that both Singh and May were give, coming at him with. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, the, the question for, for Mr. Shear probably is whether those are uh, really the issues where he's going to worry about losing votes. So... Uh, you know, his position, uh, you know, was this idea that somehow we were being held hostage by uh, Indigenous nations with, you know, if they if they had a right to consent to, to uh, as under the United Nations Declaration or uh, Section 35 of our Constitution, uh, that's probably not going to be unpopular for him in his, his heartlands of Saskatchewan and Alberta and parts of the B.C. interior. Um, you know, similarly on the environment, uh, Certainly it's a concern in certain parts of the country. Uh, I guess the question is, is that going to be the concern of the vote, you know, the person who's figuring out how they're going to vote? Uh, they aren't, you know, a diehard partisan in, you know, the outskirts of Vancouver or uh, Montreal uh, or Toronto, where presumably the Conservatives have to win if they want to pass to a majority. If there was a, a moment of conflict last night, and I kept looking for one, that might have been it. I think you just hit, on, hit it on the head there. Uh, the, the, the seemingly characterization that, that Shear gave of, of trying to d- basically describe a, a number of the Aboriginal groups that are, are now involved in court action against the pipeline situation, uh, almost characterizing them as a special interest group and, and almost dismissing them as, as, a, as a community, as part of, the, of this nation. Uh, and I know both the other leaders jumped on him for that. Uh, but I, I, I agree with your point. I don't know if that's going to lose him any votes, but I don't know if it's going to gain him any votes either. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, perhaps a more telling uh, point. I mean, and I, I really thought all the leaders took times where, you know, they were put in front of a contradiction in their platform, and they tried to talk out the clock. Uh, you know, the one time that someone really got called on it yesterday, though, was Mr. Shear, when, you know, would he, uh, would he accept the, the, uh, the court ruling, uh, the tribunal ruling, for instance, around having to pay compensation uh, to Indigenous children uh, who had been caught in, uh, in care. And so... Uh, you know, on that issue, uh, the fact that he didn't have a clear answer really became clear. And so, you know, that's a case where it goes beyond how people feel about the specific issue to begin to ask questions about why why is this person not giving a clear answer. Now, we expect that of politicians, but still, <laughs> when it's, uh, you know, pushed right to the fore like that, it may have a longer-term impact in terms of how people see that leader. For the people that were watching last night, um, did they learn anything that they probably didn't know before? Uh, probably not. I think most people who watch debates are people who already are following politics somewhat more closely. Uh, I think what we probably did learn is a sense of what uh, those three parties that were present are going to be putting in the in the forefront in the coming weeks. And probably for Mr. Trudeau, uh, he has a sense of what issues and what sort of lines of argument they're going to bring when they uh, debate all together in a few weeks' time. Yeah, I, obviously he wasn't there, but I'm sure he's watched uh, some video and, and will continue to watch this. It's like he's going to have to dissect this just like a football coach does after a game to see who did what and where they're going on this. But I, the reason I was asking that, Peter, is with the, the the polarization that seems to be taking place right now, I mean, you know, the conservatives and liberals pretty much in a dead heat now, given you know, a couple of points. Uh, and and the NDP around very close to where the Green are in situations like this. I, I guess what we're looking for between now and October 21st is movement. Uh, some people saying, you know what, I was kind of leaning that way, but now I'm going this way. And I don't think I heard anything last night that would sway anybody. Yeah, I don't think too much. Although, again, I mean, if you think about specific parts of the electorate, uh, you know, there's uh, the kind of the latent liberals, if you like, who voted uh, for the NDP in 2011 and for Trudeau in 2015. 
this is another election where who do you vote for to to head off the conservatives uh you know the ndp looked a bit left for dead a few weeks ago on that front but you know a, a debate like this may uh you know change the dynamic on that front for instance uh, you know in, in conflicts between the conservatives and say the ndp uh, or the conservatives and the liberals in parts of uh, bc you know, again, there may be some ways in which people are looking at the leaders and what they had to say about, you know, pipeline development and indigenous rights and so forth that that might move them a little. And so, yeah, I don't think the debate probably moved much, but it probably did, did affect people's impressions of, of all three leaders, or the seriousness or lack of seriousness of those parties, and uh, I think it begins to shape how they take the news in the coming weeks. Well, especially, as you mentioned, with the Jagmeet Singh, uh, as, uh, you know, having been the leader for a little while now, and a lot of the people in this country still don't know a whole lot about him. If they watched last night, i got to think a lot of them would go, well, he seems like a pretty smart guy. Now, I don't necessarily mean that's going to agree with the policies that he's advocating, but they, they might have a more clear picture as to what kind of an individual he is. Yeah, and I guess that's probably particularly important for him when we see, uh, you know, polls which say about one in three Canadians would have a tough time voting for a sick man. I mean, that's that's pretty damning in an electoral system when you're mm-hmm. a leader. But I think, you know, people's views on these things are a bit mutually contradictory. And when they're, you know, face-to-face with uh, that actual situation, they may be fine. They have a different view than when they're talking in the abstract. And so... For Mr. Singh in particular, the you know all the airtime he can get is probably important in terms of trying to wear away, uh, you know, some of those discriminatory views that people hold uh, almost unconsciously. There is going to be another debate, the Monk debate, of course, which basically I guess is going to concentrate on foreign policy, and the Prime Minister, we're told, is not going to be at that one either. Uh, would the other three be wasting their time to simply attack Trudeau on his record, or should they be advocating, here's how I would do it differently? We didn't, we didn't hear a whole lot of, of, of new policy last night. It was a lot, okay, it was kind of the greatest hits of here's what's wrong with the government over the last four years. I anticipate they'll probably do the same thing in the other debate that he doesn't show up. Is, is that really scoring points with anybody? Uh I don't think it scores a whole lot of points. I mean, again, it's sort of, you know, taking dunks over someone who's not there. It's not it's not that uh, impressive. But, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, the Conservatives feel that uh, foreign policy is a weak spot for Trudeau. I mean, they were the only party yesterday who really tried to come back to a number of uh, foreign policy, what they see foreign policy failures of the Trudeau government. Uh, and so they're in a bit of a tough spot in that they really want to show that they have the leader that somehow is going to be more serious on that. But if it's not actually in a debate, uh, you know, it, it looks more like cheap shots than real leadership. So how they're going to arrange that, uh, I think, will be a tough strategic decision about how they how they present in that situation. And, you know, Mr. Scheer may also be in some difficulty uh, because, you know, he's, he can anticipate what Mr. Trudeau might say. But I would expect someone like Ms. May, for instance, might bring out uh, Mr. Scheer's support for Brexit, for instance, to ask mm-hmm. like, if it's really a serious, uh, someone with a serious uh, foreign policy or international policy chops. So, uh, you know, it's a bit of a, an opportunity for Mr. Scheer if he can play it right, but it's going to be tough, I think, to, to show that difference, and he's got his vulnerabilities there as well. Where do you do you think Canadians rank some, uh, foreign affairs, which is basically going to be the, the subject matter for the, the, the Monk debate? Where do they rank that as a priority? Uh, well, down the list. Yeah, I thought <laughs> so, saw, yeah. We, yeah. we saw people voting on Twitter, so a completely un, unscientific approach yesterday about which of the four topics they were talking about would be most important, and uh, things like jobs and the economy and deficits were, you know, up at about, you know, a third each, and then Indigenous rights and foreign policy were at like 6 and 5%, and, uh, you know, so that's not, you know, scientifically accurate, but I think that fits how, how people normally uh, look at it, that foreign policy ranks very low. 
Although some pollsters would say that, yeah, foreign policy itself ranks low, but there's an important vote uh, that's really concerned about security and safety and stability. And so even if it's not foreign policies that's there, they are thinking about uh, Canada and the world and what kind of leadership we have, and that actually is a is a bigger issue uh, than shows up in terms of foreign policy. And if, so, you, you, know, if you wrap it in that blanket, as you say, about a security issue, I think people pay a lot more of attention to it. Because uh, I was surprised, because I saw some ranking, uh, I figured it's one of the networks, the U.S. networks, where they were talking about that with their election coming up. And even then, you know, the, the, arguably the greatest power in the world, uh, to the voters, foreign policy doesn't seem to matter a whole lot. It's always that local stuff. It's what affects you as an individual, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> You know, I mean, obviously, uh, if really things went really bad in the world, you'd feel it. But on a day-to-day basis, you've got to get up and make money so you can eat and put a roof over your head. And so those things are much more immediate and tangible in terms of, of the quality of your life and what, what hope you have for the future. Well, uh, as I say, we're into debate season. There's a lot more going on on uh, both sides of the border over the next little while. For a lot for us to talk about. Peter, as always, thank you for your insight into this. Appreciate the time today. Welcome. Take care. Peter Gray, of course, uh, from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, a lot of politics, a lot of uh, candidate debates going on. Uh, we talked about the Canadian debate uh, that was held last night, of course, uh, without the Prime Minister. But uh, a big debate, of course, down in Texas last night. The Democratic uh, nominees, uh, well, they haven't got a nominee, I guess, but the candidates anyway for the Democratic nomination uh, to run against Donald Trump next year. I had another debate, and it was a lively affair, as we might have expected. Uh, And uh, it was interesting. Uh, We talked about substance and and performance in the Canadian debate. That was very, very much, I think, in play uh, with the Democrats last night, too. Joining us to talk about all this is Elliot Tepper, uh, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Elliot, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Bill, although I did stay up rather late last night. <laughs> so did I. So did I. That 4 o'clock in the morning alarm was, was not a welcome thing today, but I mean... Oh, my goodness. But we're political animals. I mean, you, I, you, no, I said, i got to go to bed, i got to... But you can't turn it off. It's, it, you just, it, it's, the, there was a fascination to that last night. Yes, and then everybody coming on afterwards, uh, the pundits saying, here's what we think we heard, and then the, many of the candidates were being interviewed, so it was a long evening. I don't know if there's winners in debates like this, but who impressed you last night? Um, I think a few things. One is the learning curve. That is, the previous uh, debates had lots of critiques, uh, like you and I are doing now, but everybody was doing them. And uh, I think a, a um, a lot of the jibes from outsiders seem to have been taken to heart. Kamala Harris... Uh, was no longer just angry. Uh, she was warm. She was funny. Uh, she was relatable. The things that were uh, critiqued, basically, that dropped her in the polls after the previous debates. Now she's trying to come back. Everybody likes Obama. Uh, this last uh, last debate, there was, well, you know, Obama was okay, but we've got these. And suddenly, uh, everybody opens up by saying, we, we're only here to now because of the way Obama got us here. I think that was interesting. That was an interesting and, uh, turnaround, think, wasn't it? Because it, they, yeah, they, they, they slagged and, Obama a fair bit. A lot of the candidates did in the last debate, and they certainly heard back from the Democrats, didn't they? Yes, they did. And I, and I think, so standing back, uh, I think what's really important to remember here is this is a primary contest. That is, it's within the Democratic Party itself, who's going to be the nominee? And suddenly there's a lot of realization uh, 
that you know that Obama coalition is the one that won. And some of us here were trying to uh, peel away from it. And Biden is the most effective mobilizer of that uh, coalition. We have to also remember that the primary nominee is quite different from running in a national election. So a lot of the commentary that we're hearing post-debate was from outsiders saying, you know, this is part of a national contest for who's going to beat Trump. But that isn't what was going on. It was who can convince Democrats to vote for the party champion. So they, I think a lot of the commentary we're hearing is a, a bit off, uh, off base. And so what did we learn about that? First of all, uh, as has been pointed out by others, there's a lot of progressive versus moderate uh, campaigning for who's going to get the nomination. That has enormous implications, of course, for for the final election. But it was, um, you know, this, uh, yeah, I know you wrote the, the bill, uh, Bernie, but I read the bill, says Amy. <laughs> and uh, on page eight, it's, <laughs> so there was a, and uh, I think a lot of unexamined components, well, you know, Elizabeth Warren did so well. She really held her own, and she continues to surge. But her policies, if you, if the, once the Republicans get their hands on, on the policies and if she's on the ticket, her policies are eminently debatable to a general public i got to ask you about that, because I'm, I'm hearing all sorts of speculation, and especially when you watch some of the coverage on the U.S. media, uh, that you're right. I mean, the progressive theme among these candidates seems to be the dominant theme, and not just in the debates, but on the campaign trail as well. And, and the question a lot of people are asking right now, Elliot, is that really reflective of the way Democrats feel about a lot of these policies? Well, and, and voters. Well, uh, more importantly, voters, yeah. So... Uh, Huh. There's a broad picture here of if you want to be a leader, are you leading or are you just following? That is, Bernie Sanders really did reshape the debate in America. Uh, he proved to be a leader in the sense that he put issues on the table that are now being discussed very seriously, including what nobody will say out loud, which uh, except every now and then Bernie Hinn said it, the Canada option mm-hmm. <laughs> for medic for health care. So uh, leaders can reshape the debate, and, and Elizabeth Warren is staking her whole campaign on that, saying, I've, I'm not just going to talk about this policy or that policy. Structural reform is needed in America. Vote for me, and I will bring the kind of reform to end corruption and so forth. So the the whole idea that well, maybe they're too progressive. Yes, maybe they are. And that's why and Amy uh, and Buttigieg and I think the moderate lane people, Cory Brooker to a degree, are saying we have to be able to win in the Midwest. We have to be able to win where um, these are great ideas maybe you're talking about, but they're not going to sell. And I think a lot of the health care debate really comes around uh, finally that one point. Yeah, this may be great ideas, but we have to sell the ideas. So the clash with Joe Biden's perspective saying let's build on Obamacare, not replace it, uh, really comes into focus.
Yeah, because uh, notwithstanding what Donald Trump is saying, I think there's a, a general consensus now that, you know, the health plan they've got, well, it's better than what they had anyway. And uh, so, and it's something they already know. Uh, I, I, I think it's, you know, the stuff that Elizabeth Warren's talking about, and to a extent, I guess, what Bernie's talking about is kind of abstract to an awful lot of Americans because they, they just can't get that. Uh, because they've never been exposed to it, and and you 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 really have to make it easily accessible and easily understandable for voters, don't you? Right. And on the other side, uh, you know, I'll come to that in a bit. As uh, Trump has no plan at all, but he's going to say he's going to have a good plan. Yeah. And it's going to be very simple. He'll just he's very good at saying you know one two three and, and hammering home a very clear message, uh, even though it may not have been anchored in reality. Uh, but he's very good at selling a package, and the very complex health care debate we heard last night, and this is not going to be an easy sell. Uh, I, think, I think the uh, emphasis on health care, however, was smart, because it proved in the midterm elections to be the number one concern. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we'd better talk about it, and my plan's better than your plan. I want to talk about the congeniality here, too, because uh, that struck me last night as well, Elliot. Uh, They were a little testy in the first two debates, of course, so the first two series of debates anyway. Uh, last night they were a lot more congenial. Uh, Klobuchar, Andrew, when when they finally did get a little testy, you know, she well, she, I guess, referenced Abraham Lincoln's old phrase, you know, a house divided can never survive. Uh, I don't think right. Julian Castro got that email though, because he was the only one that seemed to be snipping at everybody last night. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think this is clearly going to hurt him in terms of this was his his last stand. I mean, th- this was his chance to really stand out because this is the last you know the last major debate. And he really had to make his mark, and he decided, as he did earlier, uh, to be very aggressive. And he did, you know, got him onto the debate three times on the stage. So he did have to do that, and it's likely to hurt him because, you know, he was nasty and mean to good old Uncle Joe. However, let's keep in mind uh, that <laughs> we're talking about finding a champion for the, for the Democrats who can stand up to Donald Trump in a debate. And if you think... Castro's attack, who was kind of mean and nasty and pointed. What do you think Donald Trump's going to do to whoever gets that nomination, particularly if it's Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, he's already ready on that one? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, standing back from all of the debates, and not just last night's, I only saw one candidate who could really take on, um, I think, Trump head-to-head in a debate, not, necess- not in a campaign, in a debate, and that was Bill de Blasio of New York. The New York City mayor could take on this Manhattan and Queens uh, property developer, Trump. He's, he really he wanted to get in there and jump in and, you know, somebody said, tear Trump's head off. So I didn't see anybody there last night. And this is the test that is going to cost Castro, but highlights we had better find, says the Democrats, somebody who can stand up to the withering attacks of Trump, and they're coming. This, that's an interesting aspect of this, because uh, we saw this in the last election when, uh, when Trump ran against Hillary Clinton. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain demeanor and, and a certain mystique, and I guess a certain, uh, maybe even untold rules about debating. Uh, and, and that all gets tossed out the window. This, this is not Marcus of Queensbury rules. When, when Trump gets in there, he doesn't care where he walks, where he stands, what he looks at. He doesn't care what he says. Uh, and, and, and it won for him. I'm not suggesting everybody has to debate like that now, but if you're going to stand on civility and say, oh, I'm just going to do this the way it's supposed to be done, uh, he'll, he'll roll over you. 
Yes, that's why I was opening up by emphasizing this is a difference between a primary debate, a debate among Democrats to see who they will choose, compared to a lot of the commentary and also, you know, general perspective, uh, you know, who's, who's the best candidate out there. Uh, the, a general election is different than a primary election. Uh, if you followed the situation in the North Carolina special election, Trump went down and gave a uh, probably a tip the balance for what had been a 12-point lead for Trump in that, in that district. Uh, and finally, the candidate who took it, the Re- Republican, took it by two. His rhetoric in that Fayetteville uh, campaign style, you've got to vote for, for, for my boy Bishop here, it was, it was, let's call it standard Trump. And it was not nice. It was a very ugly, long, vitriolic, uh, greatest hits, you know, illegal voting and et cetera, et cetera. All of the things that brought his crowd to him and then to the election uh, was visible. And I didn't see anything on the debate last night uh, that would uh, come anywhere near to standing up to that kind of inquiry. Well, somebody's going to get the game together, whoever the nominee is going to be for the Democrats, because it's, it's, it's going to be a street fight, just as it was last time. Uh, i got to ask you, while I got you here, uh, uh, about the, what the Congress is doing. Uh, as uh, I think Nicole Wallace uh, described it last night on MSNBC, impeachment-ish behavior. Uh, they say they're <laughs> not really impeaching, but they kind of are, and depends on who you ask and what time of day it is. Um, and and uh, th- talk about a house divided. I don't think they really know what they want to do here. No, they don't. And uh, let's take it back to last night. Did you hear the word impeach from any of those no. candidates on stage? No. Or from, or from the questioners? No. This was not a topic of debate on the very day that an, uh, an impeachment pre-inquiry possible, maybe procedural process was set, was set in place. And also, interestingly enough, there was not a single Democrat who wanted to talk about the debt in America. And the debt in America is an overhanging shadow that, you know, the Republicans used to be the party of, oh, we've got to get rid of the big-spending Democrats because they run up the debt. But at a time of unprecedented prosperity, the Republicans are just, just crashing the economy in terms of debt. And the future economy there is, is, is in debt. And nobody talked much about women's issues which was very odd given the composition uh, mm-hmm. on stage. So what was interesting is what was talked about, but what wasn't talked about. And in terms of impeachment, the Democrats are in this quandary in that uh, a vast swath of the Democratic base says, you've got to impeach this guy and get rid of him because he's guilty. This guy's a crook, and he's taking money, et cetera, et cetera, and he's working with the Russians. But you just cannot get around uh, Nancy Pelosi's observation uh, when she first resumed the, the speakership she's saying one thing i've learned in my many years in politics is how to count and you cannot get the republicans in the senate to convict on an impeachment remember the house draws up the bill of particulars but it's the senate that votes on the final there's no way that at the moment so i guess my final thought on that is well okay so they've got the process in place in case something breaks if something comes to change the equation, they've got the machinery ready. But it's clearly not going to be a way to proceed right now. There's no consensus in the country or within the party on that. 
I don't even know if there's consensus with the yeah in the Democratic Party. I mean, they were saying yeah, yesterday. I'm into Democrats. Yeah, so. and, we, and on CNN and MSNBC, they were saying I, they, they don't think even the Democrats in the House have got enough votes right now uh, to actually. That's why it was the Judiciary Committee that started this process yesterday. It was not a vote in the House, which is not really the, the traditional way to start something like that. Well, they they've got primary initial responsibility, so it's it's constitutional in that sense. But the main point is, Pelosi says we can't. There's no way you can get rid of him as of right now. There's no way to impeach the president of the United States. We don't have the votes to do so in the Senate, no matter what you come up with in the House. So why are you plunging us into this in an election year when we could, you know, hammer away on other things? There's plenty of ways to make the president of the United States look bad through inquiries initiated in the House. Impeachment isn't one of them. So this is, in a sense, standby it does two things. It, for, the, for the Democrats in the party base who want to impeach the president, this says, you know, we're doing something. We, we're, we're underway. We've got something for you. Uh, we're listening. We're hearing you. And over 50% of the elected House uh, Democrats now have signed on to this. But it does have standby machinery just in case something breaks. Or somebody actually reads the Mueller report. Could be either way, I suppose. Uh, Elliot, <laughs> thank, have a great weekend. Thanks so much for this today. <laughs> sure, Bill. Anytime. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, from Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on nine hundred CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.